You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Please open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, and there is no shame in consulting the table of contents in your Bible, by the way. If you are using one of the Bibles that are right there in the seat back, the bookmark is in Zephaniah. We are taking a short break from our verse-by-verse journey through Romans to focus on some amazing truths, exciting grace, deep Christmas theology, intensely practical as all true biblical theology is, and life-changing. I want to call your attention today to Christ's joy in his people. Christ's joy in his people. Seen in an uncommon and rarely preached Christmas passage, Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. It tells us that God joyfully delights in saving sinners so that they joyfully delight in him. And as we all know, true joy is in short supply in the world today. In fact, more often than not, it's, it's misery that is more common. Hours ago, eight people were killed and dozens more wounded when two suicide bombers attacked a church in Pakistan. Hundreds of worshipers were attending service. Just one example of the misery that mankind finds himself in. In the midst of mankind's misery, God breaks in with both judgment and joy. Both judgment and joy. And what Zephaniah is giving us is a scene of future judgment as well as joy from God. Judgment or joy. And near the end of this prophecy, There are three important insights about God's joy that are revealed. This will be our outline for today. First, I want you to see who is called to rejoice. Verse 14, who is called to rejoice? Number two, why will they rejoice? Verses 15 and 16. And then third, where does the joy come from? Verse 17, who is called to rejoice? Why they will rejoice and where the joy comes from. So I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God and his word. I'm going to read Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 14 to 17. It's always good to remind you that I am reading the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. It's our privilege to hear it, my privilege to read it. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. 
On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And Lord, I thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us today. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, that you would comfort us. Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's interesting, I just read these verses and it's all about joy. And it might lead someone to believe that, oh yeah, Zephaniah is all about joy. You need to uh, go no further than Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And let me just tell you, it's one of the most terrifying descriptions of the wrath of God in judgment that are found in these opening verses of Zephaniah. The entire cosmos will be consumed in God's burning anger, the very order of creation overturned. Listen, Zephaniah 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, from kings. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, this is what God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. That's how it starts. The Lord declares it. But you get to the end of Zephaniah, and he is closing by telling us of the coming king who will save many to the praise of God's glorious grace. It ends with good news for the redeemed who cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Zephaniah contains bold statements of what God will do. Where you've got one of the most blatant descriptions of the wrath of God, you also have one of the most moving descriptions of the love of God found in the whole Bible. In these verses we're looking at today. That is fresh news for us who are either overconfident in ourselves or insecure about God's love for us. Does God delight in you? Is he happy with you in Christ? Or is God angry with you? Only pleased with you when you perform well? Zephaniah answers our fears. Zephaniah shows depravity's consequences and and then literally takes out a huge spotlight and shines the light on the gospel goodness of God's salvation. Shows us how we can delight in God in the midst of grim despair. How God's love overcomes man's hate. How God's love is literally put on display for everyone to see. And, and what you've got in Zephaniah is this 
magnificent foreshadowing of our eternal joy as believers in God's presence in his kingdom forever. Let's look at some background about Zephaniah. The prophet Zephaniah ministered to the nation of Judah in the 7th century B.C., around about the years 640 to 609, uh, during the reign of young King Josiah. For perspective, Isaiah was prophesying earlier, 740 to 700 B.C. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Zephaniah. The times in which Zephaniah prophesied were dark days in Judah's history. Think Baal worship, think child sacrifice, think rampant idolatry. And the message that God is giving through Zephaniah is judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Judah is going to be crushed under the fierce wrath of God. In an immediate sense, that means that they're going to suffer defeat and destruction for their sin at the hand of Babylon. In the more distant future, there will be nations who will be punished for their wickedness. Um, They will be consumed in the fire of God's wrath, his just wrath. But here's the amazing part. In the midst of this grim scene, a a glimmer of hope remains. A glimmer of hope. Because Zephaniah is telling of God's faithful remnant that will be delivered from the wrath of God to come as they are humbly and dependently taking refuge in God Almighty himself. And, And Zephaniah is telling us, God is telling us through Zephaniah, that he is going to gather this remnant to himself, and then he's literally, amazingly, dramatically going to dwell with them, be with them, which just causes us to marvel at the grace of our king. Zephaniah chapter 3 begins... And I want you to go there with me. Zephaniah 3.1 starts by saying, even though it looks like they're getting off scot-free, God's going to judge the unrepentant. It's going to happen. Look at verse 1. Woe to uh, the rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Verse 2, that listens to no voice. That literally means does not listen to the voice. God's word accepts no correction, like Romans 3 says, no fear of God before their eyes. They're proud. They don't trust in the Lord. They don't draw near to him. Literally, they refuse to worship God. Verse 3, her officials are roaring lions. They're pawns of the devil. Their judges are evening wolves. They're ravenous, all-consuming, self-gratifying, without reason, without wisdom. They're instinctively evil. Verse 4 tells us her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. They are unrestrained in their evil. They are insolent. They are reckless. Very much like Romans 1 describes those who are foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. And verse 5, though, tells us this. The Lord is righteous. 
he does no injustice. God is God no matter what. He does no evil. He is faithful. Literally every morning, each dawn, he does not fail. Like Lamentations chapter 3, great is God's faithfulness. Never doubt the faithfulness of God, the unfailing faithfulness and righteousness of the Lord. It is daily and it is regular. But Zephaniah says the unjust, they know no shame. In verse 6, God says, I'm going to cut off nations, lay waste their streets. The cities will be desolate and without inhabitant. They will be like no man's land, no one. Because God's wrath is going to be unleashed and people will get what they deserve. Verse 7, he says, all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. They planned it all out. But then look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. Wait for me. God says, wait for me for the day, the terrifying day. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to seize the prey. I'm going to gather the nations for judgment. I'm going to assemble the kingdoms, pour on them my indignation, literally fury, literally unbridled wrath, all my burning anger. And he says, in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth will be consumed, laid waste. As Hebrews tells us our God is a consuming fire. So here is some Christmas cheer for the people. Zephaniah, he's speaking for God. God is speaking through him and says, on that day, no one will be able to stand at his reckoning. It won't be possible. Who can stand when he appears? Then he says, wait for it though. It's sure. Do not doubt. You'll look around and you'll see people refusing to fear God, but on an appointed day, he's going to testify against all the unrepentant. Get this even those who claim his name. And then we come to Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, where we're looking at today. This is God basically pulling back the curtain and showing the inner workings of his joyful salvation plan. Three important insights about this joy are revealed. I mentioned them before, but let me repeat them. Number one, Who is called to rejoice? That's verse 14. Number two, why will they rejoice? Verses 15 and 16. And number three, where the joy comes from. What's the source of the joy? Verse 17. First thing, who is called to rejoice? The answer is really simple, but if you get this one wrong, you get the whole Old Testament wrong, you get the gospel wrong. You have got to get this answer correct. Who is called to rejoice here? Verse 14. It starts this way. Sing aloud. You're going to be singing. You're going to be rejoicing. Who is it? Simple answer. God's people are the ones who are called to sing his praises. The elect. The regenerate. Those being saved. This is what it starts with here. A call for the people to rejoice. They will be in captivity It's in tragedy, uh, lamentation, depression, sadness, and the prophet is looking beyond the tragedy of the captivity and calling for unrestrained joy. Isn't that crazy? In the middle of tragedy, 
you're supposed to sing with unrestrained joy? This is what it says in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Zion, that's Jerusalem. Came to be the hill the temple stood on where God was, where worship took place, where the people of God would join together to praise God. It says, Israel, you need to shout Literally, a, 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 a ringing cry. It's going to ring through the rafters. It's going to r- reverberate through the room. Rejoice. Exult with all your heart. This is what the believers are being called to do. Because there will come a day of great joy. So sing, shout, be glad, rejoice with all your heart. I love it. Zephaniah is like piling up verb after verb, expressing joy, and they're like stepping stones that take us from present gloom to future glory. Because, and you need to grasp this, God intends a joy for his people, both now and for eternity. If you're a believer, God intends joy for you, not just in eternity, but now which tells us something. The joy that God gives us in Christ is different than what we often think of as joy. And in your darkest day as a believer, God will cast joyful rays of hope on you. Sing, shout, Rejoice. Now, if you're in the doldrums, you might be singing the blues, but you're not going to be singing praises. But you are to sing, shout, and rejoice to the Lord with all your heart. Just do it. Just shout aloud. Sing. Be jubilant to God. The joyful shout. In those days, that was associated with the the outcry of battle, literally going into battle and also winning the battle. My favorite psalm is Psalm 100, and it begins like this. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Some days I'll uh, get into my truck, roll the windows up, and think about that verse. And then I'll say, Woo! Jesus, you are awesome! In my truck, the windows rolled up, and no one else around. I'm not going out into the neighborhood and doing that. I probably should. But shout joyfully to the Lord. This is not a halfway measure. This is with the whole heart. This is with no reserve. This is let your guard down and let her rip in praise to God. Well, this is an amazing turnaround from being under the curse of God's wrath to being blessed, isn't it? Look with me at chapter 3, verse 9. That's what God says he will do. This is why you know it's believers that are the only ones that can do this. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That they may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. If you have any inkling in your mind that somehow man determines his salvation... You need to read Zephaniah 3.9 every single day until you get it right. The only reason 
anybody's going to be able to praise God is because he is going to change their heart. He's going to regenerate them. He is going to make them alive. He is going to change the speech of the people to a pure speech. Isaiah 6. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. But he says, I'm going to change your speech to a pure speech that all of you may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. This is talking about God converting the nations. Even in this gathering right here, we are a conglomeration of nations. Gentiles are going to call on the name of the Lord, who is God Almighty, alone God and Savior. Joel 3, verse 5, Joel even connects the, the coming day of Yahweh with the widespread calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. Not only with their lips, but with all their lives, they will serve God. Look at verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers will bring my offering. This is telling us that God's sovereign grace is going to reach to the southernmost branches of the Nile, deep into Africa, and prayers for salvation will be addressed to God alone because God is in the process of converting the nations. Many of us, most of us here, are living proof. In verse 11, he says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty, no arrogant in my holy mountain. Why? Because you will have received mercy and forgiveness and grace from God. Not because you don't have any guilt. God is going to bring about a great day when all sin will be removed from his people and the entire community of God's people are going to be free from shame. Think about the shame of our sin that we still live. We are Roman 7 people, are we not? Where we are saved and we still sin and we, we live many times with shame and God said, it's going to be taken out of the way. In verse 12, he says, I'm gonna leave in your midst a people humble and lowly and they are going to seek refuge in the name of the Lord. The name Zephaniah means hidden by God. Hidden by God, hidden by God by grace in the cleft of the rock, just like Moses in Exodus 33. Verse 13, those left in Israel shall do no injustice, speak no lies, no deceitful tongue. They shall graze and lie down, none shall make them afraid. So you're seeing glimpses of this grace that's gonna come upon God's people. And Zephaniah, he is literally seeing the redemptive blessing from God's hand as already accomplished before they're going into captivity. The chronology of this is startling and notable. Because when God says something will happen, it is as good as done. Zephaniah calls God's people to rejoice. Literally, sing a psalm of salvation to God. Shout joyfully to him with all your heart. So first thing we see in here in this passage is who can rejoice? It's believers and believers only. But why can they be joyful? We need to know. Why can they be joyful? We see it in verses 15 and 16. And really, we've seen shades of it here in the first verses in in Zephaniah 3. Look at verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. That's talking about God's saving acts. He's taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. 
So you can rejoice only if you're a believer, and you can only be joyful in, in God because of his saving acts on your behalf. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. That's salvation's day. Taken away, it literally means to set aside, put it aside, get it out of the way. It's the legal claims, the judgments against Zion that are being annulled. It's plural, by the way, plural judgments. Literally every possible judgment that could be leveled against you is taken out of the way. Every legal accusation. You will have total peace with God your Savior. Savior. Like Romans 5.1, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he has cleared away your enemies. What does that mean? Clear away literally means to just clean it all up, tidy it all up, cast out the debris, wipe it all away. Like, let's say someone just throws up right in front of you on the ground and you gotta clean it up. Get it out of the way so no one smells anything and no one sees that anymore. Or, or cleaning up a, a, a crime scene and just wiping it clean. It's like cleaning out your garage. Wipe away the debris. A clean garage would be awesome. Uh, No debris, everything in its place. I envy people with clean garages. If you have a clean garage, you bug me. You're annoying to me if you have a clean garage. You need to come help me. He's going to take away... The judgments and the enemies. The Assyrians are going to conquer them. There were these huge judgments coming in, and it was deserved. They, they deserved it. But the enemies will be defeated. Yahweh is going to cast out all of his people's enemies. There's a promise that God made to Abraham. It's the promise that God made to Judah. Genesis 22, Genesis 49. It's the promise that was repeated as a part of the Mosaic Covenant, Deuteronomy 28, 7. Your enemies will be defeated. The enemies of his people is the judgment against their sin, and now in Christ, the judgment no longer exists. Your guilt is taken away. There is no record of your wrong. Uh, This picture is salvation in Christ. Not guilty. Reconciled to God. God's wrath appeased. Christ reigning victorious. When you are in Christ, you are forgiven of your sin, which means that you are no longer under the condemnation of God. Romans 8.1. No longer under the condemnation of God. And there's more. Keep looking at that verse with me. God is with his people. We're still in verse 15. The king of Israel, the Lord. Go over to verse 17. The Lord. You'll notice in your Bible that it's all in caps. L-O-R-D. All in caps. Why is that? It's because this is the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh. This is creator God. This is that special name that Jews wouldn't say because they were afraid to take God's name in vain. God is with his people. The King of Israel. The Lord. Yahweh. It's not hard to imagine God as king. He's God. It's not a democracy. He is in total control. He is sovereign. The Lord, the creator of all, we're being told, is in our midst. So we will never again fear evil. 
God, the great I am, says, I am in your midst. I am with you. I will dwell in the midst of you. This is Emmanuel. This is Christmas joy. This is, this is access. This is access to God where you can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is access. We live in a social media age and we have instant news and we think we have access to people. We don't. Not the kind of people that we sometimes want access to. You've got access to your friends, of course, but some people think, you know, um, I have access to public figures now. I have access to famous people. I was messaging them the other day, you know. They haven't gotten back to me for the last 15 messages, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking with them. No. You might even be in the same room with them, but they're not talking to you. They've got handlers. They've got bodyguards. They've got security details. You're not getting anywhere near them. But here is God himself who will dwell in the midst of his church. And it's not just access, it is a promise to provide. A promise to provide. Once someone told me, they told me, they said, you know, we're gonna give you this house. You're gonna, we're gonna give you this house and all you have to do is for the next 30 years pay the principal and interest and don't miss any payments. And it's yours. The bank is happy, joyful to receive those payments every month. But I'd be a fool to say, well, it was free. This grace of God giving salvation to unworthy sinners is free. It's free. This is like someone telling you, we're going to give you the house, we're going to pay the principal and interest, and we're going to, to bulk up your investment portfolio. We've got it all covered. And not only that, you'll be protected by God's security detail in Christ every single day of your life. Makes me think of Mephibosheth. One of my favorite Old Testament characters, a son of Jonathan, King David, wants to show kindness to, to a relative of Jonathan, and he finds out that there's a, a son who is lame in both his feet, can't walk, has to be carried everywhere, and he brings him and says, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to care for you, you can't, be, you can't walk, you've got to be carried, I've got this, you're mine for, forever, for the rest of your life. This is like Jesus promising the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. This is Jesus, like Jesus promising, I am with you always. God's love for you, unchanging results in full redemption for you in Christ. You will be fully saved because God is faithful. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, on that day. What day? The day of the Lord. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, and, and you got the day of the Lord. I just want to pause for a moment. Go back to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7. Now let's see about that day of the Lord. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. This is a scary day. And then verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. It's a scary day. But now, that same day, for a believer, they're being told, fear not. 
Don't be afraid. This is not a day of bitterness for you or fear for you. This is a day of gladness. This is a day of joy. Now it was in its sobering aspect before. Now you see it in its positive light. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your, hearts, uh, let not your hands grow weak. The physical display of fear is the powerless you know, hands that can't do anything. You know, fear is the emotion, the useless hands, the, the evidence. There's a huge difference between the terrifying fear of the unforgiven sinner and the reverential fear of God in the believer that motivates our obedience. This idea of uh, the powerless hands, it describes the act of sinking like into the water, into the depths. It, it's the idea of burning grass clinging to scorched earth. It's the sun going down. It's the idea of all the fear you had, gone, banished due to the presence of God with his people. This is like a parent comforting a scared child. And here's what Zephaniah is telling us. Something we have to take to heart. There is a king in your midst and he is not angry with you. There's a king in your midst and he is not angry with you. He is righteously angry over sin but he has wiped it away in Christ. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. This is the cause for great joy for the believer. So who can, who can be joyful? The believer. Why? God's saving acts. But I want you to see the third thing in this passage. Not just first, who are they that can be joyful? That's the believer. Why can they be joyful? God's saving acts on their behalf. But then the last part, we're about to see something about where the joy comes from. How it comes about the source of our joy. So verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. The source of our joy is God himself. God's people are comforted in his joyful presence, but not only that, we are literally fed with joy by God. God's joy feeds our joy. We can't be joyful unless God is joyful. Now, this verse, verse 17, is known as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. If you ever wondered, where, where is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament? Right here, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. God as king in the midst of his people is as old as the assembly at Sinai. God's kingship among his people, the covenant he made with David will be fulfilled. A son of David will sit on the throne Forever, Emmanuel. You shall call his name Emmanuel. And he is a mighty one who will save in his might. He is the divine warrior. He is powerful to save. He's acted on behalf of his people in the past. He, he will do so again and he will do so today. And God is the mighty hero who saves. Isaiah 9, the prophecy concerning the coming son of David. You get this emerging picture of a virgin born son of David who will be called God with us and the Father of Eternity. This is the only reality that will carry you through everything in life. 
If you wonder sometimes, how am I going to get by? The only, the only way you will get through everything is by all of God's promises that always come true. That he is with you in Christ. And he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Only a God-man ruling in fulfillment of the promises can be king ruling in Zion. Fulfilling all of the redemptive promises of God. And if this wasn't enough, you know, this is almost like the Ginsu steak knife guy, you know, but wait, there's more. If this isn't amazing enough, now it's going to get positively otherworldly. It's going to get outside the bounds of your comprehension right here. Look at, look at the rest of verse 17. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God expresses his love for believers with exuberant singing. He sings. We think of us singing to God. This is God singing to us. He's going to burst forth with singing in his joy over his people. God delights in his people. Rejoices. God's vocabulary is one of joy. His thoughts towards you, if you're a believer, are joyful. Christ's love goes beyond words. It says here that he's going to quiet you by his love. If you've got the NIV or the ESV, it says quiet you by his love. The better translation is what the NASB has. He will be quiet in his love. That's the better translation. For example, if you say uh, he will quiet you by his love, the idea there is that uh, that truth is elsewhere in the Bible. God comforts his people. That's not what this verse is saying. There's comfort involved, but it's, it's more than this. He is quiet because of his love. That's what this verse means. He is quietly contemplating his amazing love for you. He knows all things, and he is silent in his love, and here's the big reason. He is not going to bring up any accusation against you because of your sin. Only blessing. He is quiet. He is silent in his love. He won't bring up any accusations against the believer. The blood of Christ pleads your new innocence. I've thought about this a lot, and I've thought, when have I been like that? Like, I can think of being loud with joy, but when have I been quiet in love? And I think about my wedding day when I was watching my wife walk down the aisle to marry me. I think about the, the birthday of all five of our kids. In those moments, I wasn't shouting out loud. I was literally exuberantly joyful on the inside and silent. I think about watching Michael and Taylor walk down the aisle to get married. I think about leading my mom and dad in a renewal of their marriage vows after 63 years of marriage this past June. That was a a joyful silence that I was experiencing in those moments. I think of a newly married couple who are just enraptured with each other's love and they just 
look in each other's eyes. I think of a married couple for 70 years that just don't need to say a word. They just look at each other with, with joy. And in those moments, when in that silent, contemplating love, there's only goodwill, uh, only unity, no accusation, nothing but blessing. And this is what we're hearing about God and his relationship with us, that over us he sings loudly and contemplates quietly. Verse 17 says, he will exult over you with loud singing. You know what that means? The one who is the most joyful, the leader of the joy, is God. He is leading the singing. So sorry, worship leaders. You're priming the pump, but God is the true worship leader. You notice loud singing and quietness? God's delight is in his people in Christ. He delights to give you the kingdom. Question. You're a believer. Does God delight in you? Answer. Yes. Is he happy with you in Christ? Yes. Is God angry with you in Christ? He is grieved when you sin. He is grieved when you are hard-hearted. He is grieved when you are unrepentant. But he loves you. And his kindness leads you to repentance. Is God only pleased with you when you perform well? Not according to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. For those of you who think this sounds scandalous, I will tell you it is easy for me to think this sounds scandalous. It's because it is. God's grace is scandalous. He gives sinners who deserve only judgment and wrath and hell eternal life in Christ. Which, by the way, a lot of people say, well, won't that lead you to take the grace of God lightly? No, it leads the true believer to worship God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength. We know we are prodigals. We know we are like Peter. We are simultaneously saved and sinful. Don't we kick ourselves often for being colossal mess-ups? We think we need to earn God's love. Or we think we've done enough to merit God's love. Either way, we're off base on that. We imagine God always opposed or angry or grieved or frustrated. He does not ignore sin. He takes sin very seriously. He sent Jesus to the cross to pay for our sin. But let me just tell you, believer, if you're a believer today and you're struggling with this, you don't have to be good enough. You can't be good enough. And in Christ, God delights in you. He delights in you. He exults with joy over you. Why? Only one reason. Because he wants to. 
It's Romans 9. Because he wants to. He chose you from eternity past to be with him forever. He gave you a new heart. And yes, there is that person you are living with that you look in the mirror and see every day, and it's a Romans 7 person, saved and simultaneously sinful. But God is gracious. He is happy with you in Christ. He is angry with you if you are not in Christ. Only in Christ does he delight. And if that wasn't enough, I just want you to quickly look at verses 18, 19, and 20 with me. Because this is like God taking the microphone and saying, I'll finish this up. He's been speaking through Zephaniah, and now Zephaniah ends in the first person with encouragement from God himself. Here's people living in dark days. They're going to precede the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, and they are going to need encouragement. And here we are living in the dark days before the return of Christ, and we need encouragement. So God speaks directly eight times in the last three verses. Verse 18, I will gather you who mourn. Verse 19, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise. Verse 20, I will bring you in. I will gather you. I will make you renowned. I will restore your fortune, says the Lord. And let me just throw out one other idea. How's that joy delivered? So only a believer can have joy. And it's because of God's saving acts on your behalf. But how's that joy delivered? Where's the fountainhead of joy? You know, like water bottled at the source? Well, like a geyser that never runs dry, God's joy sources yours. The psalmist said in Psalm 87, verse 7, all my springs of joy are in you. Ephesians 3.19 tells us that he fills us to all the fullness of God. Psalm 16.11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. My favorite part about Christmas are nativity scenes. Uh, I've got a big marriage Joseph and Jesus in my front yard got blown over last night in the wind. I've got to put it back when I get home. But I've also got a little small nativity scene on my desk in the office here all year long. And I'm just in awestruck wonder that God would send Jesus to be the Savior of the world and to die for my sins and to rise again and return as conquering king. If you think about it, the, the, the gospel in a nutshell is shown in a nativity scene. A nativity scene is, a, is the gospel in a nutshell. You got Christmas, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, the first coming of Christ, the first advent. And what, what did he come to do? 1 Timothy 1.15 tells us, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners. And God was very happy to do it. Isaiah 53, 11 tells us that it pleased the Lord to crush Christ at the cross. It foreshadowed his joy in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy that sat before him, went to the cross. So yes, I am seeing a really big nativity scene in Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17. A very strong statement of Emmanuel, God with us, mighty to save. Christmas joy and a prophecy of coming judgment. And yes, Zephaniah opens with this blatant description of God's wrath, but it closes with one of the most beautiful descriptions of the love of God in the Bible. God joyfully delights in saving sinners so that they would joyfully delight in him. Believers should be joyful. This passage of scripture really has three fulfillments. It was the immediate fulfillment uh, some years later, they went into exile, and they had the, ca- the Babylonian captivity, so that happened. But the second fulfillment was far in the future, and it was the incarnation, the first advent of Christ, his first coming. But there is a long-term fulfillment of this passage as well, the consummation of all things, the second advent of Christ, his second coming. They waited for the first coming of the virgin-born Savior, we We await the return of the resurrected mighty king. He will come again, as Hebrews 9 tells us, without reference to sin, to save those who eagerly wait for him. Final, complete salvation. If you're not a believer today, you need to believe the gospel and be saved. Turn to Christ and be saved. Escape judgment and be rescued from the wrath of God by the shed blood of Christ in your place. We can be joyful because of the saving works of God. God himself is joyful in his people in whom he delights. He is more involved in the joy and in the love than you are. And the ultimate delight of the Lord is his joy to present us blameless before his presence with great joy. Christ's joy in you as a believer is soul-shaping truth. As I close, let me just ask you, what is it about you that God delights in? Let me tell you, he loves you because he loves you. He made you. Why does God tell you that he delights in you? He wants to enrapture you with his love. And what effect ought that have upon us? It ought to leave us awestruck and confident and who he is and what he does. He loves us, he rejoices in us, he delights in us, and it makes me weep for joy, it really does. It makes me ask God in wonder, do you really love me like this? Do you love me like this? And then the statement, the, the declaration, yes, you, you love me like this. May we never forget this love and this joy and maybe dwell in it. Lord, thank you that we can dwell in your love and your joy because of what you have done. Lord, we pray that your love and joy would overflow into every nook and cranny of our hearts and minds and lives and transform everything about us. 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.